My name's Dave. I am uh, one of the pastors here at Cross Point. It's great to be here with you this morning. Isn't it much more comfortable in here today? Yeah, we're getting better. All right. So I don't think they're in here, but I'd like to say thank you to the uh, custodial staff for <laughs> um, for warming things up for us. We are starting a new series this morning that will take us through the Christmas season, and we are going to be talking about the events leading up to the Incarnation, which I'll explain in just a minute. And the series is called From Fear to Joy. And there are only two of the four Gospels. There's four Gospels that are uh, that record for us the history of Jesus' life on earth. And only two of them really include the what are called the infancy narratives, or the infancy narratives. The birth of Jesus, the birth of John the Baptist, those, those two events were huge in the, in, in the history of the world. And we have a lot of interesting details about those two events. We're going to start looking at those this morning. And I'd like to start by asking you, have you ever, have you ever waited, had to wait for something great to happen that you, you knew was going to happen someday, but you had to wait and wait and wait for it? You knew that when it happened, you would be filled with joy, but you ended up waiting so long that you wondered if it would ever come. Have you ever experienced that in your life? I have. I'm sure all of you have. I was born three years after the Milwaukee Bucks won their first and only NBA championship. Yeah. They've never been back. I mean, I've been waiting for... I mean, I've been a Bucks fan since I was probably five or six. That's when my dad introduced me to the Milwaukee Bucks. So I've been waiting for, you know, 35, 36 years for them to get back to the finals. And I wonder sometimes if it's ever going to happen, you know? And, and so I, I know what that's like. You know, Cubs fans know what it's like, you know. If you're a Bears fan and you were born in the 80s, you know what that's like. For kids, Christmas is kind of like that. You know, Christmas, they know it's going to come. They know it's going to happen every year. And, and after Thanksgiving, kids get excited. They start to get excited because they know Christmas is next. But it seems like an eternity, that one month between Thanksgiving and Christmas. It seems like time slows down. And parents, the parents, they want time to slow down because they, it seems like we never have enough time to prepare for Christmas and get all the gifts and all of that. But for kids, it just seems like those few weeks take forever because there's so much anticipation. They want to speed up the clock. And we have these um, you know, Christmas calendars these creative little, you know, things that we put up in our homes to count down the days to Christmas. Do you guys have one of these in your home? We have a couple. And one of the things, you know, you take a candy cane out and you move it over every day. And the kids, they love to do that. They love to, you know, put an X on the calendar or put, you know, move the candy cane or whatever it is because they know that it's one less day that they have to wait for the happiest day of the year, right? Well, some kids can't seem to wait, though. How many of you, as a child, ever looked for your Christmas presents before Christmas? Is anyone willing to admit that? You ever looked for your... Okay. Most of you aren't being honest right now, but that's okay. Some of you are like, I still do that. How many of you found your Christmas presents before Christmas? Anybody? Yeah? All right, now let's find out who the really special people are. How many of you actually found your Christmas present and you got it out and played with it before Christmas? Anyone? Thank you. That's, that's great. You guys are special. Um, you know, some people have a hard time waiting for joy. Some people have a hard time waiting for great things. And I, it's hard to blame kids for looking for their presents. It's just hard to blame them because they're so excited. Well, today we're going to begin by looking 
at the people and events leading up to one of the, maybe the most great, one, maybe the greatest and most joyful event in history, which is when God became a man. Now theologians call this event the incarnation, which means God becoming flesh. It's, it, that, that word is a theological word. It, we use it to describe God becoming a human being. And that's a mystery. It's a mystery. How could God become a person? And, and I think it's challenging for us to even wrap our minds around it. But what I'd like to try to challenge you to do this morning is to try to imagine. Now, that, that's an event, the incarnation, God becoming a man. That happened a couple thousand years ago now. So that's way in the past for us. We look back on it with joy. But what would it have been like to be on the other side of the incarnation? What must it have been like to be waiting for that event to happen? I wonder what that was like. You know, we know that God became a man. His name is Jesus. We know all about Jesus now. We know a lot more about God because of the things Jesus said and did. But I wonder what it was like to wait for that event to happen. To know that God, what was it like to read the Old Testament? To be a follower of God in ancient time and to read the Old Testament and to know that God was going to do something amazing. He was going to break through history as a redeemer and he was going to change the course of history. He's going to reverse the curse of sin and death and change the world forever. What was it like to know that was going to happen and to wait for it and, and not to really know how it was going to happen, or when it was going to happen, or maybe even if it was going to ever happen. What was that like? Well, we're going to start our journey today towards this amazing event called the Incarnation. The Incarnation, of course, is about Jesus, but the story of the Incarnation doesn't start with Jesus. It starts with, a, with an old married couple that teaches us how to wait for joy, which is a really, really hard thing to do. It's a really hard thing to do. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Luke chapter 1. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1 this morning. We're going to start out by reading in verse 5. We're going to read a story about the first people who God chose to announce the incarnation to. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. Please read along with me if you have your Bibles there. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, Herod is the one, he was the bad, really bad king who had all those kids murdered. There was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had... No child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. We're going to pause there. So Zechariah, here's an old priest. He comes from a long line of priests. His wife comes from a long line of priests. I mean, if you were born from the Levite family, you were a priest. That's just what you did. And I kind of picture, they lived out in the hill country of Judea. I can't help but picture an old pastor and his wife living out in the country, getting ready for retirement. That's, that's who I picture them to be. They're both righteous and they obeyed God's law. They weren't perfect, but in God's eyes, they're righteous. They're living the right way. They put God first. They have faith in God. 
This is who they are. They're trusting in the promises of God. So according to God, they're righteous by faith. They're old, they're faithful, but there's one thing they don't have. Children. They don't have any children. They don't have any grandchildren. Elizabeth is barren. Now, some of you have, have struggled. You've, been, you've, you've suffered through infertility. There's, there's a lot of pain that goes along with infertility. It was no different for ancient Hebrew women. It might have been worse for them. Because Jews in ancient times, in this time, they believed that if you were a woman and you were infertile, or your husband was infertile, you couldn't have any children, that was a shameful thing. There's something wrong with you, with your life. God's disappointed with you. Maybe God's punishing you. It was a big deal in ancient times. People looked down on you if you were infertile. It was very, it was, it was a, considered a reproach. And so this is a big deal for them. And Luke goes out of his way to point out that even though they've never had children and, and Elizabeth is barren, it has nothing to do with their relationship with God. God's not disappointed with them. Both of them are living lives that are pleasing to God. It has nothing to do with sin in their lives. In fact, God is actually up to something big. And that's the reason that he's kept Elizabeth from having children. So why is infertility so important to the story? Why is it so important? Because here's a couple who's expected to be good. They both come from a long line of priests. They're expected to follow God. They're expected to know the law better than anybody else. They're expected to obey the law. They both come from priestly families. The priesthood's in their blood. They've served faithfully just like their fathers before them. They've done everything right. They've been blameless. And what, are they, what does God give them in return? What does God give them in return? Barrenness, reproach, suspicion. You know, maybe they've done something wrong and God's punishing them. There's, the, there's loneliness and disappointment. It's, I think it's worth noting that even though they never had children, they continued to serve God faithfully. They prayed and waited for God for years, years. Nothing changed. They never gave up on God. They decided that even though God had not answered their prayers for a child, God was still worth trusting in. He was still worth living for. On this day that we meet, Zechariah and Elizabeth, for the first time, they've long since given up on having children. But they are still seeking God. Even though God had not come through for them, even though God had not blessed them with a family, they were going to bless God. They were going to trust God. They still believe God is good, even in their suffering. And that is why I think Luke can say, here's an old couple who's living the right way before God. It's because of their suffering. So what keeps them going? What is it that they're hanging on to? What is, what is their faith in? Let's, you have to think back with me now into the history leading up to this point. Way back in Genesis 12, way back in Genesis 12, God speaks to Abraham. He tells Abraham... That I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to make your name great. Whoever blesses you, I'm going to bless. Whoever curses you, I'm going to curse. And through your family, every nation on the earth is going to be blessed. This is what God told Abraham. And then he sent him off to a place where Abraham didn't even know where he was going. He just trusted God and he left. And some of the promises that God gave to Abraham came to pass. Abraham, Abraham did become the father of the nation of Israel. 
the nation of Israel did become great. Think about the, think about the period of King David's rule. I mean, they were conquering nations all over the place. Things were going really great for a while. And then David, you know, he sinned. And, you know, you know that story, David and Bathsheba. And there were some consequences, some consequences for that. But then, even after David, King Solomon, King Solomon's rule was even greater than his father David's. And it looked like, through King Solomon, all the promises that God had promised Abraham were going to come to pass. The Messiah was going to come and everything was going to be made right with the world. But that didn't happen. Israel became vulnerable and weak. Things started to fall apart. They went into exile. And all of these nations started just kind of taking turns, overpowering Israel. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Romans, the Persians. I mean, they just took turns bullying Israel. Israel is like this little nerdy nation that all the other nations like to pick on. That's kind of who they are. You know, Israel, Israel, she looks different, she talks different, she thinks she's really special, she acts like she's smarter than everyone else, and so all these other nations just like to push her around and mistreat her. It seems to them like God doesn't care. I mean, to many Jews, it seemed like God's never going to do anything about it. He's never, he doesn't even hear us anymore. He doesn't care about our affliction. Even though he promised us that he's going to send this Messiah, and this Messiah is going to be, he's going to be our redeemer, he's going to set us free And he's going to change the world through us. The Messiah is the key to all the promises. Especially the promise about the world being blessed through this little seemingly irrelevant nation that God has chosen. And so the Jews keep waiting and waiting and waiting on God to move and nothing happens. Generations go by and the Jews are praying. They're crying out to God And nothing happens. And then the Romans finally invade Jerusalem and they take control of the city. And there were revolts and rebellions and all of that. But then in about 63 BC, when Zechariah is a child and his father's a priest, the Romans send in the great notorious general Pompey. And he crushes Israel and he takes over the city. And he establishes himself as the new bully in town. And if you're a Jew at that time, you're probably asking, what is God waiting for? Why does this keep happening to us? Hundreds of years have gone by. We've heard nothing from God. I mean, God was sending prophet after prophet and reminding us, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rescue you. It seems like it's never going to happen. I mean, hundreds of thousands of Jews died waiting For God to do something, he never did anything. You know, how are we ever going to bless the world when we can't even get out from under the thumb of these bigger, stronger nations? And so a lot of Jews started giving up on God. They just started forgetting the promises. They gave up waiting. They decided God wasn't worth waiting for. They decided that Israel would never become the nation it was meant to be. So we might as well just make the most of the time we have left. But not... Zechariah and Elizabeth. Let's pick up the story in verse 8. Luke 1, chapter 8. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now 
And there appeared to him, I'm sorry, in verse 10, and the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. We're going to pause there again. Now, there's a lot of priests back when they were ordered, uh, um, back in this day. There's about 20,000 priests in Israel. About 20,000. And they're ordered by divisions and served on a rotation. So Zechariah's rotation served only two weeks out of the year. Only two weeks out of the year. And there's about a thousand priests in his division or close to it. And so on this particular day, Zechariah is chosen to enter the holy place where only priests are allowed to go and offer incense. This is a huge deal. A huge deal. Listen to William Barclay's thoughts on this day for Zechariah. He says, It's quite possible that many a priest would never have the privilege of burning incense all his life. But if the lot did fall on any priest, that day was the greatest day in all his life, the day he longed for and dreamed of. Now maybe you can picture the scene with me. Okay, Zechariah, he puts on his priestly robes. There's this whole getup that they put on, the priest, before they entered the temple. He puts it all on. The robes, they symbolize purity. He takes the incense in his hands. He walks through the outer courts of the temple. There's a, probably thousands of people there gathered because this, this is a sacred moment. And they clear a way for Zechariah to enter, to walk up the steps into the temple and make his way into the inner, this inner chamber that was the holy place and offer the incense. And as he's passing through the crowd, there's probably many of them are praying out loud, praying for Zechariah, praying for the nation of Israel, praying for the Messiah to come. This is the prayer that they prayed many thousands of times. And Zechariah can hear this as he is approaching the temple. And he walks up the steps and he begins to make his way to the holy place, which was this inner room. It's not the holy of holies. It's not the holiest place. Only a one priest once a year went in there on the Day of Atonement. This is the room right before that. And they're separated by that giant curtain that guards the Holy of Holies where God's presence is. So Zechariah finally, he enters the holy place. He enters the room. And as he enters, he sees the ancient furniture that God ordered Moses to build thousands of years before. He sees the golden lampstand giving out a faint light as the candles burned. On his right is the table of bread. In front of him is the golden altar of incense where he's to offer the incense. And behind that is the curtain that leads to the Holy of Holies. And Zechariah is burning the incense and offering prayers for his family and his people. His heart's probably pounding inside of his chest. 
And then all of a sudden, he realizes he's not alone. Can you imagine? He's not alone. On his right is an angel. And like everyone who's ever seen an angel, Zechariah is terrified. He's terrified. Okay, it, listen, have you ever talked, have you ever met anyone who said they see, they, they said they, they've seen an angel or they've talked with an angel or something? You know what the first thing you should ask them is? Oh, really? Did you soil your pants? Did you think you were gonna die? Because that is always what happens when someone sees an angel. Do you know why? Because angels look to people like gods. Angels radiate the glory of God. There's these giant, bright creatures who are powerful. And the glory of God is sort of, you know, consuming them. And at certain points throughout history, God sends angels, like a single angel, to wipe out a whole nation. That's how powerful they are. And here an angel is standing in this small room next to Zechariah. And think about this. I mean, Zechariah, he's terrified in the presence of these angels, and he's a good man. Imagine if it were you standing in front of this angel, and you see this angel, and you just start confessing your sins like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I found those Christmas presents and took them out and played with them that one year. And the first thing that Gabriel, this is the angel Gabriel, and the first thing that he tells Zechariah is the first thing that every angel says to a human. Because they're probably trained to do this. You know, the first thing, make sure if you ever talk to a human, you just got to tell them, don't be afraid first. Because they will be. And so he does, he says, do not be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife is going to have a son. He's going to have a, she's going to have a son. I mean, think about that. That would have been enough to just bring him to his knees. And we know who the son is. He is John, John the Baptist, the one, the forerunner, the one who goes before Jesus to prepare God's people for the coming of the Messiah. The people have to be prepared for this. They have to be prepared. And this is what the angel tells Zechariah about his son. Many will rejoice at his birth. He's going to bring great joy. He will be great in God's eyes. He will be pure. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. He will turn many Israelites back to God. Why would he need to do that? Because so many Israelites have stopped waiting for God. They've turned away from God. They've given up on God. And so Zechariah's son is going to begin turning people back to God, helping them put their trust back in God and to believe in God's promises again. And so Zechariah hears all this. It must have sounded to him too good to be true. Because this is what we read next, beginning in verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. 
After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Now, it would be easy for us to pick on Zechariah here because he blows it. I mean, he has this amazing opportunity. It's the one day in his life. After you did this the one, this one time, you, you weren't, your name never went in again. You're, you were never chosen again. This is one time he's ever going to do this. And he hears the greatest news any priest has ever heard in the last 400 years, and he can't tell anybody about it. I mean, wow, he totally blew it. He doubted. Instead of just praising God right there on the spot, he doubted. And he was a good man. But listen to verse 20 as Gabriel tells Zechariah the consequence of his doubt. Listen to verse 20 again. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe in my words, listen to this, which will be fulfilled in their time. Now some translations say at their proper time or at at the appointed time. Do you know what that means? It means that even though hundreds and hundreds of years have passed and, and nothing, you know, we haven't heard or seen anything from God, God has had this day on his calendar the whole time. That's what that means. God has not given up on his people. God has not forgotten his promises. He's not late. He hasn't turned his back on you. He's been planning this day all along. Why didn't you just believe? God always comes through. He always comes through. He always finishes what he started. He always remembers his people. I know it seemed like an eternity. I know it seemed like God forgot. But he never did. There's no plan B. There was no backing out. There was no tentative date. This was always going to happen at this time, which is right now. And you know what? It's the perfect time. It's the perfect time. Why did you doubt? And then we read, In verse 25, about Elizabeth. After these days, Elizabeth conceived. For five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach from the people. After spending the better part of her life being a reproach among people, hearing people whisper about her, looking at her, she's starting to heal. After decades of people finding fault with her and assuming the worst about her and giving her looks of disapproval and slighting her, she's looking forward to joy. Joy is on the way. Because she waited for God. You know, she suffered from the dis, you know, from disappointment, from infertility, her, almost her whole life. And joy's on the way. And you know where the, Abri- where the angel Gabriel goes next after this? You know where he goes? He goes to Mary's house. And it just gets better. We're going we're gonna to look at that uh, interaction next week. But there's one thing I want you to know today. It's always worth it to wait for God. It's always worth it to live with integrity before God, whether God answers your prayers or not. Whether God comes through for you or not. Students, there's going to be so many times, young people, when you are in school and you are tempted to give up on God. You are tempted to say, you know what, God hasn't done anything for me. I'm going to go with these people. 
I'm going to do, I'm going to do it their way. I did it. I know what that pressure feels like. I know what it feels like to, to feel, you know, as a Christian, to be sitting in a group every day, day after day, with people who are far from God, you know, mocking you, making fun of your faith, testing you, trying to get you to do things that you know are wrong. And I know what it's like to cave under that pressure and to stop waiting for God. And you will experience that. And I want to tell you, it's not worth it to give up. You're going to be tempted to, but don't. Wait for God. It's worth it. Husbands, you're going to be tempted to give up on God. You're going to be tempted to give up on God and go after other things, to look at other things, to do other things that are not what God wants you to do, but don't do it. It's not worth it. It's worth it to wait for God. I don't care what state your marriage is in. You might feel like God has, you know, left your marriage a long time ago. Whatever thing you had, it's not there anymore. But waiting for God is always worth it. If you're a businessman, you're in the marketplace, you're going to be tempted to stop waiting for God. You're going to be tempted to take the shortcut, to do the thing that everyone else is doing. But it's better to wait for God. It's always better to wait for God. Couples, you're going to be tempted to give up on God. To stop praying for that thing you want. That thing that you know is good and that you know only God can give you. But it's better to wait for God. It's better to keep praying, to keep trusting, to keep believing. Because God can do the impossible. Most of us have wondered at some point, why do I bother? Why do I hope? Why do I believe? What has it gotten me? All I do is suffer and get disappointed. God, where are you? When will you, when will you hear me? When will you do something about my situation? But God always finishes what he started. He always, he always makes good on his promises. He always hears his children. He always answers. He, and after you've resisted temptation, and after you've done the hard thing, and after you've suffered and stayed the course, there's joy. Do you believe that today? <clears throat> I want to close by sharing with you my testimony. You know, what te- we, as Christians, we have this thing we call testimonies. You know what that is? Maybe you don't. A testimony is our story about our life with God. Our life before we met God, our life, how we, how we, you know, came to know this person, this man, Jesus Christ, and how he's changed our life. That's our testimony. It's our God story, right? And my testimony is not all that unique, but it's one of those stories where, you know, I was a decent kid. I didn't get into a whole lot of trouble. My, my, my parents were Christians and they, they did a pretty good job, you know, teaching me about God. But when I got into high school and out of high school, I stopped waiting for God. I tried Christianity. I tried following Jesus. I tried believing the truth. It didn't get me really anywhere. I wasn't really happy. And so I gave up. And I started living life the way I really wanted to. I started going with, that, with those people over there. And I started getting into all kinds of different things. I tried to fill my life with all different kinds of things to be happy. And I... I could have died. I mean, for five years, I ran so far from God. I alienated my family. I ended up, you know, becoming an addict and just getting into all kinds of trouble. 
And God, you know, he could have easily just said, you know, go ahead. But he didn't give up on me. He, he, he pursued me relentlessly. And he found me. And he found me. And he brought me home. He brought me home. He completely turned my life around in a matter of weeks. And he set me on a path to joy. He, he called me to be a minister. I don't know why. I didn't deserve that. I didn't deserve a wife. I didn't deserve a family. I have so many good things. I've experienced God's grace in miraculous ways. It's an amazing story, I think. But you know what? There's people who have way more amazing stories than me. One of my best friends, probably my best friend, I've known him my whole life. Most of you know who I'm talking about. He doesn't have a story like mine, but I've known him my whole life. You know, after high school, we kind of went different ways because I was, I had stopped waiting for God, but he didn't stop. He continued to follow God. He continued to seek God. And he eventually got married and have kids and, and he, co- he comes to Cross Point now. And, you know, he married into my, my extended family. It's amazing, amazing story. But, you know, his story is different than mine. There was no radical, like, life turnaround. People would hear his story you know, and it's pretty common. It would sound pretty common to a lot of people, but it's not. It's not common. There's nothing common about his story. He waited for God, and God answered his prayers. And there's an undercurrent of joy in his life. There was no running away from God as a rebel, and then just, you know, miraculous conversion, and he comes back to God. There wasn't any of that. It was just, he just stayed the course. And to some people, that's boring, and it shouldn't be. Do you know why? Because I would rather have his story than mine. I would rather have waited for God the whole time than than had to have this, you know, radical repentance. Even though any kind of repentance is radical, I think his story is better. And I know so many Christians who feel like, you know what, my story is nothing special. I never really, you know, went off the deep end. I just wait, continue to wait and trust in God. And I think those are the best stories. And there's nothing common about it. There's something very special about that. My friend waited and he prayed and he waited more. And his life, by all appearances, is not that exciting. No offense. <laughs> but at the heart of his life, there's something extraordinary It's the simple faith that keeps a man from giving up on God. That, my friends, is exciting. That, my friends, is righteousness. That's the right way to live before God. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for that you have told us the story about Jesus' birth And I thank you that before Jesus, we meet this old faithful couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and I thank you for their testimony, and I thank you for their faithfulness to you. Even though Zechariah blew it in the the temple that day, Lord, you blessed them. They've gone down in history as one of the most blessed couples ever because through them, Lord, you, you brought great news to the people of Israel and to the world. It's because of their faithfulness, God, and your promises that we have hope today in the chosen one, Jesus Christ. And I want to pray especially, Lord, for those who are here today and who have doubts about you, who have 
who are thinking about giving up on you, who are tempted, Lord, to stop waiting and to do the easy thing. And I pray, Lord, that you would keep them standing firm in their faith today, that you would remind them that you are good, that you never give up on your children, that you, that you can do the impossible, and that you give us what is always best for us. So help us to trust in your promises today and to stand firm and to be thankful because you've given us everything we need in our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.